Good afternoon, folks. That time of the day again, time for the elephant in the room here on WJAS 1320 AM and Talk 99.1 FM. This is your host, Sam DeMarco, and I'm joined in studio, as usual, by my trusty sidekicks here, John Schneider, the best executive director in the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. John, thanks for joining thanks. me. That's quite the compliment. And, <laughs> and our producer, you know, who also has his own show, but he's here working to help us dazzling dandy daryl grandy no days off sam no days off <laughs> well i appreciate that you know I, I i feel your pain my friend i feel your pain folks we have a real treat for a show for you this weekend and that's because joining us in studio a good friend of mine is somebody that that, that you'll recognize and know well but really it is a joy every time we get together former state director for rick santorum former senator here in Pennsylvania, principal in Bridge Connections, uh, basically a Republican strategist. You know, you've seen Keith. He's always on commenting, you know, on uh, elections. He's looked at as, a, uh, as an expert. My friend Keith Smith. Keith, welcome to the show. Sam, it's great to be back. I enjoyed our time together. I think in the fall or right around September, we had a nice conversation, and I said I definitely want to come back, so I'm grateful to you to invite me well listen we're, we're happy to have you here keith and you know listen you're welcome anytime uh i really do enjoy talking with folks about politics who are so knowledgeable and really have a pulse you know as you do you know on uh you know what's happening out there and how the electorate typically looks at some things yeah every year we think well this is going to be the the craziest year this is going to be this is going to set records and but forever for all intents and purposes 2024 is is going to set up to be a year unlike truly unlike anything in our lifetime. I mean, we are we are in a very unique position in America. I mean, in not only in Pennsylvania where we see how divided we are, almost equally divided uh, across the board here in Allegheny County, feeling like it's almost a 50-50 split, and uh, it's almost concerning. It's almost a that the the debate is getting uh, to the point where there's less and less tolerance between the parties and there's too much foreshadowing almost. And I don't want to be, I don't want to gaslight this too much, but there's, there's a lot of people trying to make comparisons to the 1860s in America, mm -hmm. the pre-civil war movement. Like we're getting to the point where, where it's the Hatfields and the McCoys. Like they don't, they will not deal with each other. Listen, I've faced divided government. I interned for Ronald Reagan 44 years ago, and I've seen plenty of divided government. I worked through a, a lot of divided government in my generation I spent with Senator Santorum. But we find ways to get things done and move the ball forward. That's increasingly not the case in recent years. And now the tenor is so, so bad that you have to worry about a close election because because it's it, it, we're starting to posture ourselves where neither side seems to be prepared to accept the outcome this fall. And that concerns me. Well, boy, th there's a lot to unpack there in what you just said, Keith, but I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> I think we have become much more polarized than we have in the past. And, you know, in that whole, what, what comes first, the chicken or the egg argument? Sure. I'm not sure, you know, whether it was uh, the redistricting, okay, that may have created so many districts where they were safe, either Republican or Democrat, in which case you get someone who's not concerned with compromise or working across the aisle to get things done whether it was the advent, you're starting in the mid-90s of the 24-hour, 24-by-7 cable news cycle. But whatever it was that initiated and caused this, we've certainly reached the point where we're at now. And, you know, as you said, 
it seems like every year we sit down and we say, hey, this election is going to be the most important election of our lifetimes. And then along comes 2024 to say, here, hold my beer. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're old enough to live through the ugliness of uh, the pre-civil rights movement and what happened in America. Mm-hmm. That We're embarrassed by the, the segregation of America and it's a dark chapter for us. But in many ways, we're becoming segregated again. I mean, we look at a map, when you light up that map, that red-blue map in America, we always lit up blue, the urban centers in America, of course. But now, if you see the near suburbs around every city in America is now blue. And now the, now the, the, the suburbs beyond that in rural America is all red. And now we don't blend as much. I'm, I'm finding in recent years, people leave churches because they disagree on politics. People leave social gathering. People, people are forced out of neighborhoods. People are told, children are told not to play with this other child because his parents believe a certain way. And, and we are literally now getting to the point where we want to work and worship and live in places of, with like-minded people that share our complete opinion on the direction of this country. And that's dangerous. It's the debate. It's the banter. It's the, I always said, I got my news for years in politics by just traveling from place to place, forming an opinion, and then either people supported me or they gave me their point of view and maybe they changed my mind. But I wasn't siloed. I was willing to learn at a, at a, at a picnic or a party or a club. And I learned a lot through the years talking to people. But now, it's even further complicated, I would suggest, Sam, with COVID, when we all went home, and then all of a sudden we didn't talk to anything, we subscribed to Bloomberg or Fox, or and then we were even more narrow-minded and more hardened in our opinion because we were hearing from nobody. And so, so I actually think the whole COVID era even complicated the divide, and it made us more hunkered down on a certain belief systems, and it's dangerous for the future of this republic. Well, I, I think it, the you know the uh, shutdowns and the quarantines and things like that. I think they certainly exacerbated anxiety sure you know and caused many folks to you know to your point to hunker down or you know uh for whatever reason to withdraw sure. i guess is a way but you know what um because this is a show and i'm the host i'm going to cast the blame on the progressive left here because <laughs> okay. what you're talking about look this country became the greatest country on the face of the earth welcoming immigrants now sometimes reluctantly but welcoming immigrants from all over the world Okay, but these folks, when they came here, they came here because they wanted to be Americans. They assimilated. That's how we got the term the melting pot. Right. Absolutely. But the the progressive left counter to that is focused on the things that divide us and not unite us. When they talk about diversity is our strength and diversity in thought, diversity in previous experiences Diversity and backgrounds allows you to bring things to the table where when we all come together you know, in pursuit of a common goal, we get different perspectives and hopefully get, hopefully get the best answers to address problems and things like that. But that's not what happens. The progressive left is a means to try to maintain and retain power or to obtain and retain power is focused on the things that are dividing us, trying to say that you know, you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed, trying to divide us on our race. You know, when Keith, back when President Obama won, back in 2008, you know, I supported John McCain, which, sure. you know, hey, not happy to say that, but I supported John McCain, Sarah Palin. <clears throat> so I wasn't happy when my, my guys, my folks lost. But on that night, on election night in 2008, when <laughs> President Obama and Joe Biden and their, fam- their wives – 
walked out on that stage at Grand Park, I was proud of my country, that this country had elected a black man, and I thought we would be able to move past the racial divide, you know, the animus here, by, you know, by what we had just done. But in many ways, it turned out that Obama actually drove further, a, a further, deeper wedge between us than actually healing, you know, that divide. And, and, and Democrats have continued to take and pursue that agenda to today. You know, you have cancel culture, you have all these different things. It's just, uh, and it, it, and it, it was, it's all contributed in a negative way and to what for, we're dealing with. The former president's uh, globalist agenda, you know, did affect us. You know, his apology tour that seemed to take place year after year, talking about what we were doing wrong in the world and and and, and why we needed to apologize and, and right to ship. And, and I always say the times create people. I can tell you, the only reason there was a Donald Trump in 2016 is there were two terms of, of Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. It created the atmosphere in which America first played loud and clear to people. They were fatigued and tired of, of taking a backseat, apologizing for who we were and what we built this great country on. And they wanted to set that priority and set that, that, that agenda straight again. They wanted NATO to pay their fair share. They wanted the world to appreciate the, the generosity of, of this country. They wanted to secure their border. They wanted to do the things that, that he articulated, which, which literally put America front and center again, and they were ripe for that. They were fatigued, especially in the second term of Obama when it seemed like time after time we were talking about why we're bad people or why we're not the greatest country in the world. And quite frankly, the people had had enough in America. And and that created the opportunity for uh, the movement that, that was created with the former president. Well, just look at your personal relationships, okay? Who wants to be around someone that is constantly pessimistic? Right. You know, the Debbie Downers, okay? Sure. And that's what we get with the progressive left. Always talking about, you know, what's bad about America, what may have happened in the past. Whereas we are the greatest nation that has ever faced or has ever existed on the face of this earth, okay? And, I mean, people aren't getting in boats to escape from here. They're not scrambling to run out of this country. They're scrambling to get in, okay? So why can't we recognize what it is that's here that draws people to this country, okay? And, 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 and you know, say. Well, Mr. Chairman, I am – I'm going to reiterate what we talked about in September. And, and I, I, I am glad that finally all the rhetoric from the progressive left and whatnot – uh, we, we were talking even back then, uh, we were talking about the, the, their biggest impact were in American cities, uh, that they were taking over county seats and they were taking over cities and DAs and county executives around the country. And we both said at that point, does anybody, is there a success story? After they took, after they started governing, tell me which which particular city in America that they've governed to prosperity, that they've created jobs and, and opportunities and whatnot. And we were we were hard-pressed to name that at that point, so 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 we were we were really we were really focused on laser focus, saying you just can't win elections. You have to then govern, and I I still say the same. Since September, largely they've got to get out of jail free free card again. That they don't seem to have to be accountable, but something seems to be changing. The rhetoric and the accountability relative to the border is starting to catch up with them. People are realizing the progressive agenda that has brought 8.2 million illegal people across the border in three years, and that number will be probably closer to 9-plus million by the end of this administration. The people well, are will be over up. 10. And they, and, they're, and they are laying it at the foot of the progressive movement in this administration. And that's the first time that I can tell you that there is an accountability and people 
place the blame squarely on that agenda. Well, I think one of the greatest things I think that was that accomplished was Governor Abbott from Texas and Governor DeSantis from Florida and taking and sending right you know these illegal immigrants or migrants to these other cities, shipping them up to these cities that claim to be sanctuary cities like Chicago and Philadelphia and New York and elsewhere, you know, in California, <clears throat> so that the people who used to sit there and just virtue signal and talk can now understand what the challenge is associated with, you know, this unstemmed uh, um, influx of yeah, migrants is doing. Yeah, they, uh, the governor of uh, of Illinois said, gave, gave them a mea culpa, please, you have to stop, and that was when they sent 10,000 to Chicago. Right. I mean, do the math. Take ten thousand into eight point two million. It's a speck. It's 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 insignificant. And they couldn't handle ten thousand. It's always easy to be a sanctuary city when you're a thousand miles away from a border. You're exactly. We're not, you're not going to get Canadians. All right? Exactly. <laughs> They're not worried about the Canadians. But, well, but, hey, but, I don't know. Under Trudeau, <laughs> we we may start to see an influx of Canadians for that northern border. Okay, because I can tell you the Canadians aren't happy right now with him. But, but America's also paying attention to the, the governor of Texas, what in recent weeks, sending a strongly worded letter to the president and his administration saying that I have constitutional right to protect my borders. If you're ineffective and it's not happening at the federal level, my responsibility is the people of this state. And then within days, I think it might be more now, but there were 20 state governors that joined him saying, mm -hmm. at your request, we will send National Guards men and women from yes, our states yes, yes, to Texas if yes. you ask us to. I mean, that that was bizarre. I mean, he, they could tell that people have had it. I just saw reports this week that they said in Texas, in Eagle Pass, where they have taken and put up these barriers, okay, these razor wire, they have reduced the flow of illegal immigrants to single digits a day. Wow. Single digits wow. a day. No kidding. Okay. Yes. I didn't hear that. Single single digits. So, so they said Texas says we know how to secure the border. You, Mr. President, give us the ability to do this, and we'll take and secure it because the Biden administration is dead set against it. And you know, Republicans earlier in the week, you know, I was out on Twitter and got myself in a little bit of trouble <laughs> because I put out there I wasn't happy. To see that here, the number one issue that we have in this country right now is folks' concern about this influx of illegal immigrants as well as fentanyl and other drugs and things like that coming across the southern border. And that Republicans were working with Democrats to put in place a bill that would have codified and allowed for an influx of like 1.8 million immigrants per year just coming across this border. I mean, you know, look, we live in the Pittsburgh region here in Allegheny County where the, the population is actually shrinking. You know, the answer for us, for us to grow, for us to be able to take and make sure that we have enough employees to for all the positions we have, for us to increase our GDP, and we're going to need immigration. But we also have nine universities here. You know, I believe we, we do need to solve the problem about legal immigration. We need to put in place a merit-based system where we're recruiting the very best. You know, Newsweek just did a study, and this was out this past week. What's the cost? What is this these this unfettered immigration costing us? And they because you see the left will say, well, these folks pay taxes. They pay eleven billion dollars in taxes. Newsweek quantified it that the cost per year for this surge in immigration is one hundred and fifty point seven billion billion dollars per year. Wow. Okay, think about that. 
And so here we are. We're a country that's basically broke. All of this, so much of the spending that we do do, you know, we're actually borrowing money to do. And they come out with a bill that codifies this illegal immigration into law that takes and gives $60 billion to Ukraine, okay, to, for, to secure their borders, you know. And, you know, and Keith, the entire budget, the entire annual budget of the United States Marine Corps is $53.3 billion. So we're going to give Ukraine $60 billion to secure their borders, but we can't take and, and secure ours. And I hope your, listener, I hope your listeners and, and Americans understand that when you pass a bill, like an immigration bill, it, it's it's not all one-sided. You can't just pass a bill in Washington and think that, that we're good to go. I mean, it, it's going to take the cooperation of the Mexican government. And quite yep. frankly, now we know we're in the sixth year in a row in which the major sources, the, the news sources, the media are all basically acquiescing the fact that the cartels control more provinces than the government. And we all know even, even people that aren't even up on current events in, in casual conversation will offer to me that the cartels controlling immigration in Mexico. If you get across the border, you cut a deal or you paid off the cartel. That's, that's a known fact. So, so we're, uh, what do we do? Are we negotiating with the cartels? They're going to just, oh, they passed this in Washington. I guess we're good to go now. It takes two to tangle. There are internal problems in Mexico that we have to deal with. Part of the cancer of this issue is the instability of the Mexican government that we have ignored now for almost the better part of a decade. Early on in this surge, it was reported that the cartels were making in excess of $34 million per week. $34 million per week by taking and smuggling people, you know, and transporting them to this country, okay? I don't know what those numbers may be now, but we're, you know, this not only is this costing us, the taxpayers here in the United States of America, over $150 billion a year, not only is it costing us lives and the fact that over 100,000 Americans die every year of opioid and fentanyl overdoses, 5,000 plus a year from here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Okay, but we're also enriching. We are enriching the cartels 100%. and giving them the money and the resources necessary for them to take and commit murder and everything else that they're doing, you know, in Mexico. And and I'm a hawk when it comes to our relationship with Mexico. I'm not looking to take over Mexico. I'm looking to restore democracy in Mexico. It is in the best interest of the of, of United States of America to have a secure and democratic Mexico. And and you can't tell me if you can kill a terrorist with some drone in a tent or a cave in the Middle East that is that 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 that, that is that is bringing harm against the American people or the American military, don't tell me that our intelligence in this hemisphere doesn't tell me where every cartel leader lives, where every poppy field he grows, every every warehouse that he produces drugs or imports from China or other parts of the world. And somehow we've decided that we look the other way. That's not our issue. It is our issue. And I'm not saying go over there and take over the government. I'm saying work to eradicate the cartel and their hold on the government and then restore the proper democracy and power back to the elected representatives of Mexico. And until we do that, we can't negotiate with with a country that's largely run by a drug cartel. No, you're absolutely right. You know, and then there were reports out there that were saying that, that uh, you know, AMLO, who's the president of Mexico, right. is, is uh, too friendly or too close to the cartels. And I'll leave it there because everything else is speculation right. and conjecture. You know? Unfortunately, a lot of that is just survival. 
You know, I yes. mean, literally, I mean, people, elected officials, judges, presidents are, are, are murdered on a regular basis in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, so sometimes that, that coziness could be self-preservation for all we know because the government is so unstable. But pivoting to this issue, and I, 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 I don't know whether it was the intro of the show or the intro to this, this, this conversation, I, I, I can tell you for the last six, eight months I've been saying that come, come 24, come summer, this is going to be the number one issue uh, facing voters. And I already feel it. I see eight consecutive polls in a row over eight months. It's increased in importance. And now it's going to largely overcome any other issue. It's going to be a front burner issue. And say what you want, love or hate the former president. He's not a Johnny come lately. He's a person that owns this issue. Even if you think mm-hmm. you should have done more, the fact is it's not all oh, he's jumping up. No, they believe in Trump being the, the the architect of somebody who can secure the border. And I remind when I'm debating on other programs and television and and I'm up against some hardcore Democrats and they're they're formidable. But they always fight me on saying, you know, well, you know the former president is talking about martial law and sending troops. And I look him square in the eye and I said, you don't get it. If if he goes on a campaign trail and says on, on January 20th, I'm going to declare martial law on the southern border, I'm going to send troops – He'll, he'll get 10% more votes. People want it to end. They yes. want they if it ta- they yes. want on day one, they want action. They are tired of it. They're fatigued. They're tired of talk. And they're tired of talking. Right. If you have to give them an executive order in the power, it, it, it actually will, he'll get more votes for that because they, they've had it. They've had it. So, so be careful what you wish for. If, if, if this becomes the number one issue, I can tell you the stock for the Republican nominee uh, might, might go up dramatically. Folks, we're here in studio talking to Keith Schmidt, a uh, good friend, former state director of the Rick Santorum campaign, as well as a principal at Bridge Connections and a Republican strategist. And we're talking about you know some of the key issues that we see up front here in the 2024 campaign and that are going to play out during this year. And, and Keith, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We'll get more into it in the second segment, and we'll talk more about the president, you know, former president sure. and his campaign this year and all of those sorts of things. But but you're absolutely right. You know, um, people, Democrats, I think, are cocky and confident because they're saying, hey, listen, you know, Joe Biden in 2020 got 81 million votes. You know, he beat uh, former President Trump. That was before all these other things that took place. You know, January 6th, uh, these charges and indictments and things like that. <clears throat> but a lot of folks in analysis had also been that people didn't so much as vote for Joe Biden, but they voted against former President Trump. And I think a lot of that was a result of what they saw, your media coverage coming out of the pandemic. Sure. You know, we had the uh, over 200,000 Americans you know, had passed away from COVID. And despite uh, Operation Warp Speed and those things like that, trying to get vaccines is some sort of way to help. <clears throat> you know, um, the, the results of the election were what they were. The fact that we were in a pandemic allowed uh, part Democrat Party in states across this country you know, to uh, go to court to try to loosen up rules to allow elections to be held, in many, many cases, by yeah. mail. Yeah, we talked about the Times creating people, and I said that in 16, obviously, after eight years of Obama, it, it gave an opportunity for this America mm-hmm. first mantra. Well, I can tell you right now, again, don't kill the messenger. Like him or hate him, the former president is absolutely better positioned and more popular now than he was in 2020, and you can pretty much— Credit that to three years of Biden. And the fact when you do the comparisons, people are now fatigued by the lack of leadership in the Oval Office. And that's where I was going with that. You know, they said that Biden won 
because they thought people were voting against Trump. Right. I'm saying Trump can win now the because people are going to be voting against 100%, 100%. Biden. Exactly. Because we have seen a complete and utter failure of leadership here. I mean, it'd be beginning on day one, but I think it became evident for everyone when we saw the disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan. You know, the deaths of 13 Americans. I mean, just a mess. When you saw the pictures, Keith, of sure, that Air, Air Force it was, cargo plane, it was hard transport to plane taking it was hard off to with people that were trying to cling to the landing gear, falling off and falling to their deaths. Reminiscent of the exit from Vietnam. <clears throat> yes. I mean, it was just, it, it brought back, I'm sure, a lot of very difficult memories for the American people and, and the brave men and women who served our country. But in the second half of this show, I'm anxious to talk about my predictions and, and foreshadow the fact that uh, I don't know that Joe Ball, excuse me, the, the President Biden is going to be on that ticket, and I'll give my thoughts on where I think that's heading. Well, at least you talked about Joe Biden, not Francois Mitterrand. <laughs> you know what I mean, oh my gosh, you know that this, was a classic. This, this guy, this guy is out to lunch. <laughs> Who died you know? in 1996? <laughs> yes, oh, yes. And, and KJP, uh, you know his, his incompetent it's press a, secretary it's a gift didn't even want to begin to touch that yesterday, right? No. Oh my gosh, <laughs> folks, we are having fun here as always when Keith comes in, and uh, we're going to look forward to exploring more right after the break. But we're going to have to take a break to pay the bills. This is Sam DeMarco, The Elephant in the Room on WJAS, 1320 AM and 99.1 FM Talk. Be right back after the break. Folks, welcome back to The the Elephant in the Room on WJAS. We're here again. I was in studio talking to uh, Keith Schmidt. And Keith, we were talking in the first half, and we were talking about a lot of things. But toward the end here, we were talking about, you know, former President Trump, who looks certain to be the Republican nominee for president this year, unless something, you know, really crazy happens, right? But, you know, we would say never, but this is 2024, (laughs) right? (laughs) Holy heck, who knows? Well, we we look at this past Tuesday, what happened in Nevada, where the last woman standing and and actually the last person standing between Trump and the nomination, uh, Nikki Haley, who is a very accomplished woman, former ambassador to term governor of South Carolina, popular in her own right, popular among a lot of Democrats, but literally cannot get traction uh, from the former president. And she saw in the caucus where she did uh, she did not outpull none of the above. None of the above actually beat her in Tuesday's caucus. And that's, that's you know, that's an ominous sign. And, you know, the, the one-two punch of that in next month's primary in her home state where she was a successful, popular governor, but in most polls tra- trail anywhere from, from 25 to 30 points. You don't want that to be you know, the obituary of your political campaign where you lost to none of the above and then your home state. Uh, I get it. She's the last person standing tomorrow there, but for the grace of God, we can all go tomorrow. He can get hit by a bus tomorrow. But, mm-hmm. but, but what I don't understand is all that that gets the bridesmaid is the nomination. It doesn't get her ultimate victory in the fall. I mean, whether, again, I always say this, don't kill the messenger. There's one chance for Republicans to win the White House this November, and it's with the former president. Because we all know that wing of the party, that Trump wing of the party, that loyalist MAGA group are not going to, they're, they're not going to transfer their support to Nikki Haley. And we are the minority party. We need 90% of our own vote to hold together. Right. We need the vast majority of independents and we need swing Democrats. We build coalitions to win. And that coalition will have a hole blown in it if he ever stands down. And they always say, well, what do you mean? Won't they, won't they unite? Well, let me tell you something. Everybody talks about the policies. 
And I remind people, it's more than the policies with Trump. It's a loyalty to Trump because if you really just cared about the policies you liked, then the former, then excuse me, the current governor of, of Florida would have probably outmaneuvered him this year because he's the policies without the antics. So what it tells us is they want the policies, but they want the bombastic Trump to deliver on these policies. They want the in-your-face approach. That's part of the equation that they're voting for. Well, I think like we, whether we like it or not. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know if it's the bombast. I mean, that's certainly you know a. a, a your opinion there, or they're just looking for strong leadership, right? You know, because it's certainly lacking in the Biden administration. And, and look, folks, everywhere we look, we have troubles. I mean, this economy is nowhere near as good as the Biden administration with Bidenomics or the mainstream media trying to support him would make you think. I mean, since 2018, there's been zero new jobs for native-born Americans created. Since Half what the year, jobs 2013, 2018, oh, 2018 Half, last. Six you know, have the jobs that we're talking wow. about these new jobs and these. New job reports are are, are are fake, right? Now, how do they get away with it? Ne- nearly 3 million jobs of seasonal adjustment, along with 6 million plus Americans who have dropped out of the workforce, you know, maybe likely for life, okay? <clears throat> We're hurting. The country is hurting, and government statistics do everything they can to hide it, right? right? We got the invasion of the southern border we're talking about, and I don't know how when you have 8 million, 8.5 million people come across that border from all over the world, and, 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 and you, you talk to... The folks that are down there, and they tell you it's mostly young military-age men. Okay, I don't, I don't know how you could call it anything else, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, we, and, and and the statistics that they play with, and you're reading some of them, it's interesting. You you have to also have a starting point. When the starting point for this current administration was in the throes of a pandemic. Of course, the numbers are all going to be a lot better. Right, yeah, we were in the middle of everyone down. going home yeah. and shut down. Yes. And, they're, and they're bragging about it. All that it is is the pandemic ended. Right. You're not going to get credit for people going back to work. They, we were at the low point of job creation based on a global pandemic. Well, do you remember the hee-haw? The old television yeah, show, sure, we all, and they yeah. used to sing, if it weren't for bad luck, yeah. I'd have no luck at all. Okay. If it weren't for no the old jobs all. coming back, Joe Biden won't have uh-huh. created any new jobs. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, so it's a, uh, look, we got a lot of problems. We haven't even begun to touch, touch to touch on foreign policy. I mean, my gosh, you got a war in Ukraine, okay? You got, look at what's happening in uh, the Middle East right now. Right, you got sure. the it's real. Well, well, I always Israel. say the southern border is foreign policy too. Right, that's probably our number one. You're right. The provocative situation in the Middle East, which, which unfortunately, because of the education system and how we report on the world, people can't find Kentucky on a map. So I know that they can't. They don't understand the positioning of the Middle East like they should, or appreciate what a tempest it is right now, and the fact that that we are we are months away, and, and quite frankly, we're not even months away because it's already we've had provocative situations with Iran already happen. Iran's going to enter this conflict at some point. They 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 largely funded and armed Hamas. Israel isn't going to end this conflict conflict without exacting some price on Iran. That place is literally at the boiling point and and on fire. Yes, you're absolutely right. Ukraine drags on and it and it is a hotbed uh, uh, for America. But but you get to the point where even the greatest country in a in the world, the world has ever known, can be stretched through thin. So what we also have to worry about, Sam, is the fact that that China is taking a look at us and seeing how thin we are. And they are, there's every reason to believe that they're deciding on a timing 
to make an aggressive move towards Taiwan. And at that point, the question is going to be, do we have the resources so stretched out that we could do anything about that? And, and, and a country like Taiwan, because of our dependency of microchips and all the things that we have acquiesced, no longer build in America, have mm-hmm. shipped it out for, for one reason or another, that is, a, that is a huge national security risk for us. So really, for all the concerns we have in inflation and, 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 and what's happening on our southern border, the world is largely on fire right now. And we are spread very, very thin. Well, it's not just a matter of being spread thin. It's a matter of incompetency at the highest levels of this government and the signals that they're sending. For example, Keith, when we had the attack on the American base, Tower 22 in, the, in Syria, excuse me, I believe it's in Syria, or was it Jordan? <laughs> but where, uh, you know, these Iranian proxies, you know, uh, sent in a suicide drone and ended up killing, you know, three American service members from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, the lack of a immediate response, you know, was disturbing, okay? And then all we heard was the Biden administration talking about, well, we don't want war with Iran. Uh, we don't want a wider conflict. Uh, we're not going to bomb here. We're not going to do this there. Instead of just responding to it with a firm, you know, action Uh, that would send a message to everyone that we're here and when our interests or our people are attacked, we will respond, okay? That weakness has continued. So these attacks have not stopped. They're continuing unabated. We're seeing the Houthis in Yemen. You're shutting down transit in the Red Sea, forcing shipping to go around. We're, show- we're not even able to stop them. We're showing our hand to the world. We cannot always be on defense. We always can't be reactionary. If we are the last true superpower on the earth, we have to start exacting our influence and our offensive ability around the globe. And there has to be a price to be paid if you cause a certain part of the world to be unstable. We'll exact a price against you. Right now, we're completely reactionary. And people know that. And they absolutely know how, how, how thin we're spread right now. And that's why we have to worry about things like like you, you talked about Yemen. Yemen people yeah. don't even have any clue of what's going on. Right. Zero. I mean, it's interesting. Somebody <coughs> sent me an article that actually – did, uh, did uh, some time there on, the, I don't know whether it was a Peace Corps, somebody from my college talked about Yemen. And if he hadn't sent me that article, I wouldn't even know about it. And I try to keep right. up to date. So there are little things that we don't even know. Just what's going on that we know about is troubling enough. But the fact is, we all know Civics 101, uh, the economy and whatnot are largely uh, articulated and run by those, 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 those men and women that sit on Capitol Hill and sit in these meetings and whatnot. But foreign policy has always been the 800-pound gorilla for whoever sits in the Oval Office. That mm-hmm. is that you defer to this person. This person, man or woman, leads foreign policy. You put your confidence in them to keep America safe and keep our position in the world. And he's been an abject failure in that role for the past three years. Right. And I, I think for our listeners, so that you understand, we're, we're not advocating we go to war. Absolutely not. <clears throat> but we're, what we're advocating for is when you're punched by a bully, you punch them back. Okay, you have to send a message that this won't be tolerated because weakness only invites, you know, more action. And that's what's happening. I mean, you know, there's talk that Iran could be only be a week away from building a nuclear weapon. Right. Okay. And, and these folks, you know, have demonstrated, you know, with their support of terrorism all over the globe that these folks could be, you know, could be willing to use it, but possibly against Israel. And then where are we at? And, and it's troubling also. When, let's pivot back to that's probably the. Outside the border, the, the hottest discussion in the world probably is the Hamas-Israeli conflict, the war that has been raging there for some time now. And, and it disturbs me. It really does disturb me that 
that this is there's such a generational divide on the opinion in the American public on this war. And 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 the root cause of this generational divide is so clear to me. The media has 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 done a poor job in the last generation and the educational system has done a poor job in the last generation talking about the history of Israel from whence they came, how that how that was developed, what the Middle East is like, what 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 they live with and the pressures they live with, the the the, the realities, the, the hard realities we learn from the Holocaust and the history of the Jewish people. And and they have no appreciation. So when you see these protests in big city America and in college campuses, I can tell you, take the take the big shot, zoom in, and and the average age is all 18 to 35. You're not going to see anybody in their 40s at any of these protests because they have a different appreciation for what the Israeli people are facing. The fact is, Israel is the size of New Jersey. It would be like, you know, living in Pittsburgh and knowing that New York, uh, Columbus, West Virginia, and Altoona, all not only in their religion and in their government, want the destruction of our of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we are surrounded by people who both through their government and their, and their, and their religious beliefs believes in our annihilation. So what they don't appreciate is everybody, I hear the same rhetoric all the time from young people. This is the, what, what they did. I know they lost human lives, but, but, but this is a disproportionate response. It is absolutely a disproportionate response. They have to disproportionately respond. They cannot live in fear every day of their lives. And they have to know if you go down this path again, if anybody does what Hamas did, which create the bloodiest day since the Holocaust, we will take revenge at a level that, that, that you will never forget what you did to us. We have to, if we don't do that, then we open this up to be a, a, at every three months, every seasonal, every year. They can't live like that. So is it a disproportionate response? Absolutely. But is it a purposeful disproportionate response? They cannot live in fear and and and, and try to run a country in the middle of, of people that literally are are dead set on their destruction without doing what they're doing right now. Well, it was, it was said most appropriately by some folks right after Israel started to respond. And they talked about, you know, when these calls for ceasefire first came out. Right. You know, and they were just saying that, you know, there, there was a ceasefire on, on October 6th until Hamas broke it on October 7th. You know, and they talked about, you know, you want to talk about laying down arms. If Hamas would lay that surrender and lay down their arms, there'd be peace. If Israel would stop and lay down their arms, there'd be no more Israel. Okay? Right. So, I mean, folks have to under, they have to understand this. Now, again, it's a lopsided negotiation. You know, uh, right. And there's so many people out there that everything's about emotion, they don't. But, folks, again, you hear us talking about these, some of these, just a few of these issues, you know, and, you know, you talk about Iran. You know, I've read where some folks are saying, you know, why is Biden so terrified, you know, to respond to this Iranian provocation? And so folks have said, well, he's afraid that by doing so, it could cause the price of gas of course. to go up. You answered your own and question. He's in, and he's in an election year. It's it's okay? the fact that we are not energy independent. <laughs> and he doesn't want to see $5 gallon uh, gas. 100%. Well, look, I mean. 100%. You know, this we, we can go that, into this stuff. That's the cost of, yeah. of not having energy independence. That's the cost of not drilling in America. That's the cost of not taking being prepared to take advantage of the full resources and and, and that, that are in the ground, in and around America, in the waterways and whatnot, because then you start making bad foreign policy decisions based on political and not and not uh, and, and and not the just way that you should be literally have the interest of protecting the American people and, and our allies around the world. No, there's a second thing. Oh, it's an election year. Oh, I don't want 4 or $5 gas. All of a sudden, you know you don't have the reserves that, that you had when you, when you took over in, uh, in 2017. 
excuse me, in 2021. So, so yes, I, I, it really bothers me. It also heightens the real issue that favors the Republican <laughs> Party. Uh, when we have Republicans in the White House, they are much more focused on energy independence and understanding that the world cannot hold us hostage every time there's a conflict in the Middle East because we don't have uh, access to the resources that exist in America. So you're 100% right. The, the biggest fear for Iran, uh, with, with Iran for this president, is how it can affect the ballot box this November. Well, you know, we're, we're talking about these things here. And folks, it's important to understand that these are just some of the problems that this country is facing that are at stake. <clears throat> but, you know, this election is going to be for many more offices besides just who controls the White House. And in Pennsylvania, I think we have a critical election here. You know, we have Bob Casey. Uh, uh, yes, yes, folks, someone found him from the picture on the milk carton, and he's now come out of hibernation here. You know, we got Punxsutawney Phil, you know, last week. And this week we get Bob Casey, who's coming out, you know, once every six years. You know, when he runs for re-election. But here's a guy that has taken and voted with Biden like 98.6% of the time. So these bad policies that have exacerbated inflation, these bad policies which have made us less energy independent, you know, these bad policies have all been supported by Bob Casey. And he's being challenged by probably the best candidate Republicans have put up. I mean, in recent history, I can think of, in Dave McCormick. Well, it, it, there, there, if there is an opportunity um, for the senior senator to be defeated and if there's a vulnerability, it, it, it can be this year because Pennsylvania is definitely in play. I mean, we've, we've literally decided the presidential election two consecutive cycles, and there's reason to believe we're, we're squarely in play in the Electoral College um, matchup this fall. But, but the reason that, 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 that Senator Casey – to his credit, is taking this very seriously. Is he knows that that the Republicans are 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 tasting blood again with the chance to reclaim the White House and feel like uh, the provocative moves around the world and here at home are setting up. If there is a rematch, that uh, that the, the positioning of the former president is better than it was in 2020. But more so, statistics don't lie. When when he looks at the fact that he's running for his fourth term. He has to look back at the three other times he ran. He ran in 2006, 2012, and 2018. All three of those cycles were enormous landslide cycles for the Democratic Party in America. They were a midterm for Trump. They were the, the re-election of Obama. And they were 2006 when the, when the Republicans got swept out of both chambers of Congress. So they were landslide movements for his Party. Right. So he was he hooked to the right train three <coughs> right election time. cycles in a row. Yes. Three election cycles yes. in a row. But this cycle, for all intents and purposes, is shaping up differently. So he's gotta he they, I'm sure he's already knows that this one he's gonna have to raise more money. He's gonna have to tell a story and and he's gonna stare down what will likely be a close race in November just because of how the national debate is setting up right now. Yes, and I, I and I don't know that he's up for it. And I think you know, John Fetterman, who won election here back in 2022, you know, for all of his faults and the things that we see with him, I think he has demonstrated and further pointed out the lack of leadership from Casey by coming out on a number of these issues. Well, for example, in the support of Israel. What, what's happening with this awakening? <laughs> I mean, I mean, the national people are even covering it. Like major networks are like – they just—they're asking that question in roundtable discussions. Like, 
what the heck happened in Pennsylvania? I mean, what was it last month that for three hours he was on top of a building waving a well, Israeli that was, flag? That was what, that, no, that? that he was in his home. In his home, and and protesters were outside. Okay, so he went up to the roof on the roof of, of his, his house. home. Yeah, and well, he lives in a in an old uh, automobile dealership. Oh, okay, okay, but he went okay. up on the roof waving oh. the Israeli flag. No, I was just recently interviewed by um. NBC News, and they were asking me about that. I said, look, I said, I'm happy that he's come around to our position on a number of things. I said, but but these aren't Republican positions. They're common sense positions, right? right. You, support, you support the country that's been attacked by genocidal terrorists, okay? Right. You recognize that you can't have the population of the city of Pittsburgh coming across the border every single month and it not be a crisis, you know? Well, you, you know, he stepped in in regards to, it was a, with uh, Chuck Schumer, who wanted to take and re- further regulate nicotine products, and he said, "Look, uh, Fetterman said he's going to he together with Kristen Sinema, I think it was no Joe Manchin said, you know, I'm not going to sign on to this because he said I'm going to err on the side of f- more freedom, right? Right. But those are common well, sense positions, not Republican. Yeah, even if I disagree vehemently with so much when he originally ran, and and I I thought him uh, as a progressive, and I can't be for him, and all this, uh, no." Everything is set aside when you have health scares. Everybody, the whole the, the whole American tradition is you wish whether you're a, your enemy or your foe in the in, in the political battle, you want everyone to recover and, and regain their health and, mm-hmm. and be fully functional and and come back to the arena. The good news for us is the healthier he gets, the more he's talking our language. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he's he seems to be his capacity is. All the, the 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 serious health woes he faced that he seems to be weathering now and coming out the other end. A healthy senator is our best is our best friend. I mean, the healthier he gets, the more conservative he gets, and the more it's like it's like I, I jokingly say it's almost like an awakening. Like, what did you do to me for a while? I mean, I, I, these are clear. And when he talks about it, he does it exactly the way you presented it. He's he looks at these reporters and he basically says, "What are you talking about? My ba-? this is common sense positioning." He ba- basically throws it back to them like don't accuse me of i'm not with the republican i'm, I'm with the common sense pos- sense position right. on this point right you know i'm not i'm not i haven't suddenly become a republican <laughs> or conservative i'm an american right and americans should stand with me on these issues so but, i welcome them but that being exactly but that being said you know uh again i think it's just further illustrating the lack of leadership from bob casey and another reason why we need to elect dave mccormick in November. Well, I, I know that you only have a certain amount of time. I know you're probably your hour is starting to, to wind down here. I, I do want, I'm not the host, but I want to pivot back to the presidential because I foreshadowed what my, what I've been talking about on the, on the presidential side on the Democrat with the Democratic nominee uh, right now, likely to be the, the, the sitting president of the United States. But, but I can tell you my tea leaves are telling me differently. You know, uh, the one thing uh, that you said earlier, I was state director for his campaign. Technically I was on his campaigns. I took leaves of absence, but my state director role was really on the official staff for Senator Santorum mm-hmm. here in Pennsylvania when he was in the United States Senate and in Congress. And in those in those roles, because I was not as often in Washington or Harrisburg, I was I was working the state. I was actually built a lot of of bridges towards Democrats and independents and and people of every party because they just wanted to move the ball forward for Pennsylvania. So I'm happy to say I have a lot of Democratic friends, and I actually still have friends within the DNC. Uh, that I talk to on a regular basis, and they're not giving me state secrets, but they. But I can tell you in my conversations with my old college buddies and and others that I that I've intersected with along the way, they are foreshadowing in a big way 
that that the the current president of the United States will not be the standard bearer this fall. That there's every reason to believe. And I, I told people on the way, actually walking to this studio, I was on the phone with a, <coughs> with a high school friend of mine. I said, Mark, if you give me a million dollars, I would put it that my instincts, and I get to keep it if I'm right. My instincts are not only is he going to stand down right before their convention and they will have a broker convention, but but I would put my money on Michelle Obama being their nominee. For, for all intents and purposes, my intelligence has told me that she has participated in all but one meeting at DNC headquarters for the last several months. They're deep in these discussions with her uh, about uh, a possible run, and they are looking for a a, what they call a British type of election. They want to wait till, for, till August, so there's only like six weeks till the election. It doesn't give us a whole year to define anybody. You know, they'll, they'll try to combine a one-two punch with the Dobbs decision. It deals with the question, even the lowest polling vice president in American history, you still have to deal with her because you have to, you want a, the black community to turn out in force. Well, that answers that completely. If you put... Uh, you know, Michelle Obama on the top of the ticket, all of a sudden they're not as concerned of what happens with the VP. They now have a standard bearer uh, on, on top of the ticket. And, and, I, and I would suggest that, that, that she'd be a formidable candidate. You know, I'm, I'm just telling you, my own polling within my family and friends, they, people think differently of her than, than, than Hillary Clinton. Uh, they, they have a softer feeling towards her and her abilities. I would say it would be a real barn burner between the former president and Michelle Obama, and it would be a photo finish if they indeed pivot away from the sitting president. Well, you know, I I think all of us are willing to take bets there in regards to what's going to happen, you know, with Joe Biden, because you can see the multiple cognitive failures he's right. having on the campaign trial or an issue. But you know what? I, I mean, I think I think her reputation as a former first lady is one thing, and her reputation as a candidate would be a completely different one. I mean, this is a woman that wasn't proud of her country, right? You know, until they made her husband, you know, the nominee. This is a woman I believe had her law license suspended and taken off. I mean, there, you know, it's like anything else. I mean, you know, there's always a bloom on the rose sure. until you get a chance to take a, a quick look at this or a good look at it. And I think, uh, you know, she'd suffer from that perspective. But hey, you know, Democrats again, listen. If there's one thing that they love, it's power. Okay, and they're going to do whatever they can you know, to obtain and hold on to it. So it's something we have to be concerned with. My concerns are also we're 45 years since since the Iron Lady took over in Britain, Margaret Thatcher. It's been a long time. Women in America feel like there's a glass ceiling that needs to break. Obviously, they were picking out the carpet in 2016 when, when for all intents and purposes, uh, Hillary Clinton blew that election. So there are a lot of, I think there's going to be a quiet support for women, even if you don't completely support everything she says, the the sense of it's time. And that's what I worry about. We're, 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 we've, quite frankly, should have, in my mind, already had a chief executive that's a woman in America by now. And we haven't. So that, that gives me some nervous energy that there could be a movement to break that glass ceiling with someone like Michelle Obama. Well, I think, you know, listen, I would just say as we, we look to close the show, we only have a minute left here is I think that folks are going to think that you just committed blasphemy <laughs> by comparing, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, and uh, Margaret Thatcher. Okay. And I think that many of the problems that we're facing across the, around this world are going to, people are going to be looking for a strong leader. And I don't know that there's anything that, uh, you know, would lead anybody to believe that uh, Michelle Obama is the person that can deliver that. Folks, as always, when we get started, man, we start having fun. That was great Time fun. flies. Thanks, Sam. It was great having you here today, Keith. Always enjoy and the you, band. you got to come back. I'd Both, love to. 
Folks, until next week, this is Sam DeMarco signing off for the Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM and Talk 99.1 FM Talk. See you next week.